Well, good morning, everyone. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew 15. Last week we looked at verses 21 to 28, the story of the the Canaanite woman. And you'll remember that she cried out in verse 22, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus didn't answer her a word. And she continued crying out to the point that the disciples went and asked Jesus to send her away. Now whether they meant, you know, tell her to go or whether they meant heal her, heal her daughter so she goes away, we we aren't quite sure. But Jesus kind of answered according to the latter and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she bowed down before him, a a word that often means to bow in worship, saying in verse 25, Lord, help me. And then verse 26, he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And you remember that if, if you were here last week, that she in great humility owned the fact that she was a dog, that she had no claims on Israel's Messiah. She said, yes, Lord. And she wasn't asking for the children's bread. She was merely asking for, she just wanted the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus commended her great faith and healed her daughter in verse 28. He said, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Matthew chapter 15 has been introducing this idea that, that Jesus is bringing with him new ideas about purity. See, the Jews believed that the Gentiles were unclean. They believed that the Gentiles' food was unclean. They wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. They wouldn't associate with the Gentiles. And the disciples of Jesus are going to have to learn this lesson because at the end of the gospel, as you know, the resurrected Lord Jesus gives them the great commission. He says in verse, uh, the, the very last words of this gospel, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the disciples are to make disciples from all nations. Now earlier in Matthew chapter 10, the command was this, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was Matthew 10, 5, and 6. But now that Jesus has been rejected by Israel, God's plan for the nation is going to be postponed. And of course, God always knew what he was going to do, but he deals with individuals and he deals with nations in time. And the nation Israel did not repent, and so that generation would not inherit the kingdom. And we've talked about these things before. Jesus is beginning to show his disciples that their ministry is going to expand beyond Israel and to the Gentiles. And this is so important for Matthew's audience. Matthew's audience, Matthew seems to write his gospel for the Jews in order to teach them how to follow Jesus Christ. 
Now, we are Gentiles, and we live in a time where this isn't a really a, a big deal. The gospel has been going to the, the Gentiles now for almost 2,000 years. And so we easily forget the significance of all of this, but it was important for the early church to recognize this. The Lord used Matthew to convince the first Christians that the good news of Jesus Christ was for the whole world. <clears throat> I called our message today kind of based on what we saw last week, breadcrumbs for the dogs. Breadcrumbs for the dogs. We are the dogs. We are the Gentiles. We're not part of Israel, but the, the crumbs go to us as well, just as we see in our passage today. And now that we've seen the argument in the verses that we just looked at in, in with the woman from Canaan, now that we've seen the argument and, and Matthew's kind of shown us what, what Jesus and her talked about, He's not going to repeat that again. He's, he's going to leave that alone. Matthew doesn't feel the need to argue the point further. He's just going to show us now that Jesus did what he did among Israel. He's now going to do it in the Gentile territory. And so let's read our text then. Today it's Matthew 15, 29 to 39. So Matthew chapter 15, verse 29. When Jesus, or Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowds wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. <clears throat> Well, what we see in our text today is another demonstration of the remarkable power of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was walking this planet as a man, he cured every kind of sickness and disease. He made the lame walk and he made the blind see. And these are things that we've seen before as we've gone through the book of Matthew. But what's different now is that Jesus is doing this outside of Israel. And that's why, it seems to me anyways, that's why Matthew includes another summary statement about the various healings and about another miraculous feeding. And this time with a, a slightly less people than the miraculous feeding from last time. Now we'll look at our text under four headings today. First of all, we're going to see the healing on the hill in verses 29 to 31. The healing on the hill, that's number one. Verse 29 says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now, Matthew's not very specific here in regards to geography. 
This was, or Jesus was just in the district of Tyre and Sidon, and now he went on from there. Tyre and Sidon are coastal cities kind of on the, the north, on the Mediterranean coast, a fairly large area that, that would have been kind of around the region of those cities. And we don't know how long Jesus was there or what he did besides that one interaction with a woman of great faith. And now he comes back to the lake, but this time it seems like he came to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, to the region of Decapolis. And we know this for sure because Mark expressly says so. Mark 7.31 says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Decapolis. Now, Decapolis is an area of ten cities. Deca is for ten, and polis is the Greek word for city. And that's on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee. Later in chapter 16, Matthew's going to tell us about Peter's confession of Christ, and that happened in Caesarea Philippi. And it could be that Jesus went from Tyre to Caesarea Philippi, and there was a major Roman road between those cities, And then from Caesarea Philippi, it would be pretty much a straight shot south down to Decapolis and the Sea of Galilee. Now, Matthew doesn't always follow exact chronology, and so I think it's very likely that what happened is that 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 everything happened in Tyre and Sidon. Then then Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi. Peter confessed him. Then he went south to the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis area. And then Matthew's going to later in chapter 16 kind of go back chronologically and tell us about Peter's confession. I'm really looking forward to that section in Matthew 16, kind of verse 13 and, and, and so on. Um, but that's very likely. But Matthew's not very specific about this whole thing. But another thing that, that kind of tips us into the idea that this is a ministry to the Gentiles is that in, in verse, in chapter 15, verse 31, it says there that they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. And that just seems to fit better on the lips of a Gentile. They don't just glorify God, they glorify the God of Israel. And and again, that makes sense for a Gentile who, who is beginning to understand that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, or He is Israel's Christ. And so our text tells us that Jesus went up on a mountain, uh, really a, a, a large hill in that section, but Matthew likes the word mountain. And uh, he goes beside the sea. He's somewhere along the sea, but up on a mountain. And he sat down, and that was the normal posture for teaching, for a teacher to, to sit down and teach. But Matthew doesn't really say, he doesn't focus on any teaching. He doesn't tell us if Jesus did teach anything, although it's very likely Jesus was there for three days, according to verse 32, teaching the people. And verse 30 tells us that great crowds came to him. And again, we shouldn't be surprised because we've already seen this in chapter 4. And if you just go back to Matthew 4, look at verse 23. The beginning kind of summary statement of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, it says there, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought Him all the sick, and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and He healed them. And great crowds followed Him from Galilee 
and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now notice there it says even crowds from as far as Syria, that's even further north beyond Tyre and Sidon, beyond Caesarea Philippi. And also that verse just told us that, that great crowds followed Jesus from the Decapolis. And now Jesus is in Decapolis, and this is then a great opportunity for the people from that area to bring the sick to him. You know, it's not easy to bring lame and crippled people all the way to Galilee to try to find Jesus there. And so now there's this opportunity. Jesus is in the Decapolis, and the the word spread quickly. And so they come to Jesus. Now, perhaps, too, they remembered the story that we we remember from Matthew chapter 8, where in the country of the Gadarenes, Jesus cured two demon-possessed men. Remember, those men had a legion of demons in, in, in chapter 8 of Matthew. And those demons, you remember that story? They went into the pigs and then they drowned in the sea. And the story ended like this in verse 33, Matthew 8, 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, the parallel passage in Mark of that same section, remember, this is in the Decapolis area where this happened, but the parallel passage in Mark 5.19 says he, Jesus, did not, sorry, it focuses on the one demon-possessed man there. And that man, after Jesus cured him from his demons, that man begged that he might go with Jesus. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. And so the the area of Decapolis knows about Jesus, knows about what's happened at least to this man, And so again, we're not surprised that great crowds gathered around Jesus in that area. Now let's go back to our text and look at verse 30. Matthew 15 and verse 30, it says, And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet and he healed them. And so the crowds brought the sick people, the, you know, all of these four things that Matthew says, and then many others, just kind of a, a blanket statement of all kinds of sicknesses and diseases and, and situations. And, and Jesus, they, they bring these people to Jesus. And he healed them. He healed all of the conditions, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. Now, the lame and crippled, those, those are basically synonyms. And it's really hard to distinguish between them. The word translated crippled could refer to any part of the body that was deformed or any part of the body that wasn't working properly. We would even use that word of someone who was missing an arm or a leg, and so they would be crippled in that way if they didn't have an arm or leg. The word translated lame there means just that. It it means to be lame, and, and to be lame means to be unable to walk without difficulty due to an injury or illness affecting the leg or foot. And so lame is, is just like it is in English, but the Greek word was also used for lame hands or arms. And so lame hands or arms, difficulty moving them because of injury or illness. Both of these words are used again in Matthew 18 and verse 8. Just go ahead and, and flip and look there as well. 
Jesus says there, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame. Those are our two words again. Crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And so someone with their hand or their foot cut off was crippled or lame. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus was healing over these three days as people brought him these kind of people. People with deformed limbs. Some were likely born that way. Others through illness or injury. They had their limbs restored to perfect health. Also in our text, verse 30, we have the blind. Now many, many people would have been considered blind in those days before corrective lenses. And never before or since has anyone in Scripture or even outside of Scripture healed blindness. Now we've seen before that the healing of blindness, both physical blindness and spiritual blindness, was a a sign of the Messiah. And I want you to go back, and I know we're flipping a lot here, but I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 11 to kind of see this. Matthew 11, look at verse 2. It says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciple. Now verse 2 is Matthew's wording, the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah. And so John has heard about what Jesus is doing. Matthew kind of points it out ahead of time and he calls it the deeds of the Christ. And John's disciples ask if Jesus is the one who is to come. And Jesus responds by pointing them to Scripture as well as to the deeds that he was currently doing. And in verse 4, Jesus answered them and he says, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now that all of our words are are actually in this text as well, the ones that we saw already, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, um, we didn't have lepers in our passage, but the deaf here, that's the same word for mute. And so you're either deaf or mute under that word. In this case, it's the deaf or hearing, but in our passage, it's the mute are going to end up speaking at the end. And so, um, but it's the same word there. Now, when we looked at this passage, Matthew 11, 4, 5, and 6, we saw that it was taken from Isaiah 35, 5, and 6, as well as Isaiah 29, 18, and 19, and some other passages. But let me just read for you Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. And so to make the point plain, Jesus is once again doing the deeds of the Christ, and He's showing Himself to be the Messiah the Savior of the world. And he's literally doing it in the wilderness, just as Isaiah kind of metaphorically speaks about waters breaking forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus is actually in the wilderness doing all of these things on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if we go back to our our text again, I, I love the response in verse 31. Jesus has, has healed all of these things. They put these people at his feet, verse 30 and verse 31, so, the, uh, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. 
The crowd wondered, and that word means to marvel, to wonder, to be amazed, to be astonished. The primary Greek lexicon called BDAG says this about this word. It says to be extraordinarily impressed or disturbed by something. And of course, the idea here is that, that the people are extraordinarily impressed with the healings that the Lord Jesus is doing. And they're seeing these things with their eyes. They're, they're hearing these things. The mute was singing for joy. The, the blind was seeing. The lame were walking and leaping and praising God. And it must have been just an amazing thing to be there on that day and over those three days and to see all of these things that the Lord had done, to witness these things. And as the people witness these things, it leads them to worship. Again, verse 31, they glorified the God of Israel. And so they saw that what Jesus the Christ did and they, and they worshiped, they glorified God, they glorified the true God, the God of Israel. And what a contrast we have then when we kind of compare them to what we've seen in Israel. Where the same deeds and even greater deeds or at least more deeds were done. There was a, a greater quantity of miracles that were done in Galilee. But what happened in Galilee, it it didn't result in glorifying God, but you remember it resulted in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And you remember that the Pharisees said that Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. And so there's this contrast with the Gentiles responding in worship versus Israel responding in blasphemy. And so the ignorant Gentiles who, who don't even know the true God, who worshiped all kinds of false gods, they recognized Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, but Israel, who should have known better, who should have known Isaiah 35 and 36 and should have known what the Christ would do, they, in their knowledge, they reject the Lord. And I think at this point, we do well to think of our own selves and our own response to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we aren't there. We weren't, we can't see these miracles, but they're recorded here for us in scripture. The word of God is written for us and God believes that this is sufficient to move us to worship him as well. This is the word of God showing us the ministry and the power of Jesus Christ. And so we see here the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and it should move us to worship God through Him. It should cause us, as we see this, to turn from our sins, to repent and follow Jesus. He and He alone can save His people from the penalty and the power of sin. And it should also encourage us to trust Christ with whatever's happening in our lives right now. You know, if our Lord could do these things while He walked this world, He can do much more now that He's resurrected and seated at the right hand of God. Now, his mission at this time isn't to heal diseases but and, and restore sight, but it's to deliver us from sin. It's, his mission is to build his church, to save people from sin and, and, and make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we make his mission our mission, he says that he's going to help us and we can trust him in that. We can rely on his power as we serve the Lord. And so this should just kind of give us a, a general picture of the greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we saw the, the healing on the hill. Number two now, let's see the compassion on the crowds in verse 32. The compassion on the crowds. Verse 32 says, Then Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, 
I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. What we have from verses 32 to 39 is very similar then to to what we saw in Matthew chapter 14 with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus tells his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd. Earlier already, Matthew has told us about the compassion of Jesus. Chapter 9 and verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 14, 14, which was the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And in those verses, Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion, he had compassion, but here Jesus himself informs his disciples that he has compassion. He says, I have compassion on the crowds. The word compassion means to feel sympathy for someone. And in this case, he has compassion, he has sympathy because the crowd has nothing to eat. For three days, Jesus has been healing and the food supply is drawing low. Jesus doesn't want to send them away hungry because he cares about them. And he's not willing to send them away without food because he's concerned that they might faint. And this shows us our Lord's compassion. He cares about us and he cares about our needs. Now the disciples, they should have picked up on on what's happening here. You know, you might think that that they would remember, you know, not very many months before Jesus told them in a similar desolate setting on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, you remember when Jesus said, they need not go away about that crowd in Matthew 14, 16, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. And then Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed the 5,000 men plus women and children. And Jesus had just told them here that he's not willing to send them away hungry, but they, they just didn't catch on. You know, they, they just, they, they should have been excited. Oh, this is going to be great. We're going to see another miracle. We're going to see another feeding here. This is awesome. Lord, we got some, we got five, you know, seven fish or whatever, seven loaves, but they just, they just don't get it. And, and they're going to even do this again later on. If you, if you go to Matthew 16, look at Matthew 16, verse five. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus said to them, and again, this is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're kind of going back and forth here. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we have brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? And so Jesus has just expressed his concern and, and his desire not to allow the crowd to leave hungry, but the disciples, they totally miss it. And, and this is then number three in our outline, verses 33 and 34. I called this disbelief over the desire. Disbelief over the desire. Jesus had expressed his desire in verse 32, and the disciples, they respond in unbelief. Look at, look at what they say in verse 33. The disciples said to him, 
Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, a, fam- a favorite word of the commentators to describe this response was incredulous. Incredulous means to be unwilling or unable to believe. And you can almost, if you read it, you can almost sense the attitude in their response. Where are we in the wilderness going to get this enough bread? And it's actually really a, a striking sentence in the Greek. The, the, and I'm going to kind of go through it a little phrase by phrase, line by line here. The word where is, is put up front for emphasis. And so it's like, where? Where? And, and then the word we is unnecessary, but it's put in for emphasis too. And so it's like, where are we or, or what can we do? Where are we going to, going to supply this need? And then the next words are in wilderness, in wilderness. And, and so we would say in English, in the wilderness. And there's no verb here. And, and so you have to kind of add where are we going to get or where should we get or where where would we be able to get. And and, and that's just kind of normal in Greek. So you can just kind of leave out a, a verb and, and your mind just naturally fills it in. And so it's just where we in the wilderness going to get food. And the word bread there is just the normal word for bread or for a loaf of bread. And and it's the same word throughout this whole passage. Sometimes it's translated loaves, but it's just the word for bread. But the the word that's with it is, is, I'll give you the Greek, it's tois otus, tois otus or tois otos. And and that word there means so many or so much or so great. And so the idea is where can we in the wilderness get so much bread or find so much bread or, or come up with so much bread. And next is, is the word so that or in order that. And, and this word looks to the result. And, and what they're thinking of is, is so much bread that would result in feeding or filling or satisfying these people. And, and the idea is it's going to take so much bread. So much bread, Lord. Where are we going to find so much bread in the wilderness? And then the sentence ends with another so much, so many, so great, another toy so tus. And, and this time it's in reference to the crowd. And so it's so much bread to, f- to feed so much crowd. So they got, we need so much bread, so much crowd. There's just so much, so much going on here. And, and the word there to translated to feed is also the word, it means to satisfy, to fill. And that word's going to come up later when, when in verse 37, when Jesus feeds them all and they're, they're satisfied. And so there's, there's so much bread, so much crowd, where we're in the wilderness, we can't do nothing. Now, just last week, we saw the woman of great faith and we need to compare it to her because she thought of the healing of her daughter like a crumb from the Lord's table. But, but our boys, the disciples here, they're going, where in the wilderness could we get so much bread for satisfying so much crowd? And everything is, is so big in their mind. Everything is so hard in their mind. Everything is, is kind of magnified. Everything that is except the power of the Lord Jesus Christ who's right in front of them. Now, some commentators try to cut the, the boys some slack here and, and, and they say, well, they, they put the emphasis on the word we as, as, as though they're just saying, you know, we can't do it ourselves. And it's true, they, they can't do nothing. They have no power to get bread. But, but come on here, guys. Where are we going to find this? 
how about Jesus the Christ who's standing right in front of you, the Messiah, the one who multiplies bread, the one who heals the sick, the one who walks on water, the one who's unwilling to send the crowd away hungry? D.A. Carson said in reference to this passage, he said, we must never lose sight of a human being's vast capacity for unbelief. We must never lose sight of a human being's vast capacity for unbelief. And when we think about it, if you think about it for yourself, you know, haven't you done the same? I know that, that I've done the same. You know, you go through one thing and the Lord works in amazing ways to sustain you and provide for you and reveal himself to you. And, and then not too many days or not too many years later, not too many months later, you, you find yourself in a similar situation. And you're immediately, you're going, where? Where am I going to get it? How is this going to work out? How, this, this is going to be such a difficult situation. Now, by grace, we do grow in this and, 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 and often we, we grow and get better, but so easily we, we just begin to doubt and to fret and to become anxious when, when, when the, the same thing that the Lord brought us through before is happening again. And I wonder if I, if we, if the Lord wrote a book about us, and if we read the book, if we wouldn't be going, don't you remember, you fool? Don't you remember last time that you were in that similar situation? And I think we'd be, we'd be telling ourselves that. And that's, I think, what we need to do for ourselves when we're going through that situation. Remember last time. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember the power of God and of Christ. And the point is, is that, that this is to encourage us, that we need to trust the Lord, that He is faithful. And so don't be a disciple like those disciples. We should be a disciple of great faith. We should learn to grow. We should learn to, to take hold of our mind and remind ourselves of God's faithfulness in the past so that we can grow to be one who really trusts Christ, just like Matthew and Peter and John eventually did as well, as we read later, maybe in the book of Acts, as they've, they've learned about the faithfulness and the power of God. And we need to do the same. Well, Jesus responds to their unbelief so graciously as he does with us so often. Look at verse 34. And Jesus said to them, how many low, he just doesn't, doesn't pick up on the, you know, the attitude or whatever. He just, how many loaves do you have? Seven and a few small fish, they say. Uh, seven loaves, seven breads, we should think about it, like seven about bun-sized loaves of bread. Not, not much for, not even much for twelve disciples, really very insignificant, very insufficient for so great a crowd. And they have with them also, besides those breads, they have a few small fish. Again, remember, these are going to be dried fish, most likely. And when they talk about the fish, they use the diminutive for fish. I think this is really funny. They, the diminutive is like a little. Some languages have a, a, a way to say a, a tiny one, a little fish. You say, you know, a cute little dog or something and a big dog. Well, they, they use the diminutive for fish. But Matthew, later on in verse 36, he doesn't use the diminutive. He just says fish. And I think what's happening here is in their unbelief, even the fish are smaller than they really are. And that's really what unbelief does, doesn't it? Just everything is smaller and harder. Even God becomes smaller and harder in our unbelief. 
And so unbelief makes what God has already provided seem like less than it is, and it makes God himself seem like less than he is. Whereas on the other hand, faith honors the Lord our God, unbelief dishonors him. Unbelief makes God small and our problems big. And so let's see what our Lord does now. He never, he never doubted his father. He never doubted his own power. This is number four, the multiplication of the meager. Multiplication of the meager. Um, I really looked for some good synonyms there to kind of fit with my alliteration, but that's what I got. Multiplication of the meager, verses 35 to 39. Now we've got more verses here, but it's pretty straightforward, and so we're going to move faster from this point on. Our Lord takes action to accomplish His will and to ensure that the thing that He was not wanting to happen does not happen. In verse 32, we saw that He was unwilling that the crowd would leave hungry and now He makes sure that it doesn't happen. And He's going to take the seven bread loaves and the few fish, the meager resources of the disciples, and He's going to multiply it in an amazing miracle. Look at verse 35. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Now this was the standard procedure before a meal. Jesus gave thanks. In Matthew 14, in that other feeding, verse 19, Jesus looked up to heaven and he said a blessing before that miraculous feeding. And I, I think those are really the same thing to, to kind of say a blessing or to, to give thanks. I don't think we need to understand that anything really much different was happening there. Jesus gave thanks and he broke the breads and he handed them to the disciples. And once again, the disciples participate in this banquet and they serve the people and they extend the Lord's compassion to the people. And verse 37 says, and they all ate and were satisfied. And again, that word satisfied is the same word that the disciples used in verse 33 when they said, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed or to satisfy so great a crowd? And so what they doubted, Jesus has now accomplished. So great a crowd got so great an amount of bread that they were satisfied. It says that they all ate and were satisfied and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Now, interestingly here, at least for me, the word baskets is different than the baskets that we had in chapter 14. These baskets are are bigger baskets, although I don't think there was a necessarily a standard basket size. But, but this is the kind of basket that was used in Acts 9.25 to lower Paul out of the window in a wall so that he could escape Damascus. And kind of history tells us, some writings that have survived from, from that ancient day tells us that those baskets that, that we saw in chapter 14, the type of basket that was used there, Those were baskets we know for sure were used by Jews in Rome to carry kosher food. And so in chapter 14, we had, maybe we could say it this way, we had Jewish baskets. Ones that were used, at least in Rome, to carry kosher food. And and now we have, in chapter 15, we have another kind of basket, the same kind of basket that was used in Damascus. 
And so in other words, I think we have Gentile baskets in chapter 15. Now the same distinction is made later, Matthew 16, if you just look down at verse 9 and 10, Jesus again there said, do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? That's the the Jewish kind of basket. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? That's the the Gentile kind of basket, if we can think of it that way. And so the disciples began with seven loaves and they finished with seven baskets. That's, that's truly amazing. Seven loaves, little tiny bun, seven baskets full. I don't know if they're as big as the Apostle Paul. I don't know if the Apostle Paul was a big guy, but it's anyways, there's a lot of more bread. The Lord has multiplied the bread. And once again, Matthew concludes this feeding story by giving us the number of this great crowd. In, in fact, in verse 30, it was great crowds, plural. Matthew likes the plural when it comes to the crowds. But he says in verse 38, those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. 4,000 men would, would likely mean 4,000 women. And there could have easily been 4,000 or more children as well. And so we, we probably have 10,000 plus people fed with seven loaves, seven buns. And once again, Jesus seems to have personally dismissed the crowd in verse 39 and sending away the crowd. He got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, Magadan, we don't really exactly know where that is, but when Jesus goes in the boat across the sea to the region of Magadan, he runs into the Pharisees right away again. And so it seems that Jesus is leaving the eastern side and going to the western side or even the northern part. But if we, if we kind of divide it with the river on the western side is the Gentile or the Jewish side, and that's where Jesus is now going. So he's leaving Gentile territory, going back to Jewish territory. And that's where we're going to find him next week when we come back and look at the next verses. Well, what should we apply here? And I I think there's at least two things for us today. We've already seen some things uh, uh, as already regarding our faith. But first of all, this is similar to what we saw in verses 29 to 31 earlier in the message today. We see Jesus's power in the feeding and, and it should again lead us to trust him. If the Lord had compassion for Gentiles in Decapolis while he was on earth, how much more will he care for us who have been adopted into his family through salvation? If the Lord had compassion for them, he has compassion for us. He cares about whatever we're going through, even really the least thing to have not enough food for a journey home. And so if the Lord provided their food, then he will provide ours. If the Lord provided their needs, he will provide our needs. And then secondly, we should recognize that the Lord shared a meal with the Gentiles. And remember how significant this is again. Remember, Peter had trouble with this, and Paul had to rebuke him for not being in step with the truth of the gospel in Galatians 2.14 because Peter was no longer eating with the Gentiles. But we just saw here Jesus host a banquet for the Gentiles. And Peter even had trouble with this even after the gospel had gone to the Gentiles, after his threefold vision and his preaching to Cornelius. Even after that, Paul had to rebuke Peter. Now again, we don't have trouble with it anymore. We're not really thinking that the gospel is only for the Jew. That's not really a struggle that we have in our day. 
But I think it's something that we can rejoice in, that the gospel is for all people. It's for Jew and Gentile. And the good news is that Jesus can and will save all who come to him. And he will forgive your sins and make you new in him. And he will, if you will turn from your sin and believe in him, and if you will trust in him and him alone, he will save you if you come to him in faith. And so again, we've seen our Lord Jesus Christ today. He's compassionate and caring. He's concerned even about sinful people who might faint from hunger on a journey home. And he's powerful. He's the Messiah. He's the one who can save. He died and rose again. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. And he rose again and is at the right hand of God. And one day he's going to return to restore this creation and bring it back under his righteous reign. And until then, he offers salvation to all who will repent and believe. And he promises to be with us until he comes again, until the end of the age. And so that's our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we we just thank you for our opportunity this morning to look at this passage. We thank you for showing us the glory of Christ healing all of these people, the lame, the crippled, the the blind, the, the deaf and the mute, and many others. We thank you for letting us see the, the power that he had in feeding the 4,000, multiplying bread. We thank you that, that that power is still yours, Father. We pray that you would help us to believe, help us to trust in you, despite how things appear outwardly. And as we come now to the Lord's Supper, we, we pray that you would help us to participate in the Lord's Supper. Help us even to sing now in response. We thank you for the great love that you have for us, Father. And we thank you for what you accomplished through your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.